mathematics is everywhere we use numbers quantities values and measurements almost all the time counting and quantifying is part of almost everything that we do from very simple activities uh, to the tasks as complicated as uh, understanding the structure of the universe understanding the nature of subatomic particles understanding the secrets hidden in our dna for all these tasks we need mathematics a question that i have been thinking about for some time is when did we humans start thinking mathematically what is the origin of mathematical thinking how did our brain evolve to do mathematics and what are the major milestones in the evolution of mathematical thinking and in the history of mathematical innovations i invited dr keith devlin for a discussion to tackle to dissect to address these questions dr keith devlin is the director of the stanford mathematics outreach project at stanford university dr keith devlin is the author of 33 books and over 80 research articles i started our discussion by thanking keith for taking my call and by welcoming uh, him to bridging the gaps Oh, thank you very much for inviting me on, Wasim. Pleasure to be here. Keith, uh, it seems that about ten thousand years ago, human society became relatively complex. That uh, there emerged a need for systematic mathematical tools uh, to manage complex issues. Now, before we discuss this, uh, let us uh, focus on the evolution of human brain. first so let us discuss that how did our brain evolve to develop and acquire fundamental capacities to do mathematics and in your publications and in your presentations you list nine such capacities let us discuss the development of these capacities in human brain to do mathematics Yeah that, that that was a question that puzzled me increasingly as I went through my career as a mathematician and because it was a varied career and I did I just did pure after my PhD in 71 it was 10 or 11 years I just did regular pure mathematics I was teaching mathematics around the world I was doing research I was writing papers I was writing mostly high level research monographs and graduate textbooks and and doing the kind of thing that that professors of mathematics do all around uh, the world within departments of mathematics that was my focus but then in the in the early 1980s I began to get interested in these questions of of language and communication and started um, moving into a different direction into a more applied direction in a sense my pure mathematics work was about infinite sets of large orders of infinity so it was very far removed from the real world but then i go to this very other end of the extreme where i'm looking at mathematics even more applied than in physics and engineering i was trying to apply mathematics to human beings and how we communicate communicate and live our lives that's a very it's about as applied as you can get uh, for mathematics and in the process of doing that transition Uh, and the transition in my case took place via a couple of years looking at artificial intelligence in in the 19 early 1980s in making that transition i began to think about mathematics as a human activity has what well, i know when i'm, I'm applying mathematics 
to the human brain and human communication. And that made me think about how is that human brain between my two ears able to think about mathematics? How did our ancestors, uh, in, 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 in human terms, how did our ancestors acquire the ability to do mathematics? Because it's really sort of a strange thing. Um, and it's not like language. We acquired the ability to, for language, but we don't have difficulty learning language. We, we just learn it by living. Um, no one has to really teach us language. We have to be exposed to it. But we are predisposed, we are hardwired to learn language. It's not the case with mathematics. Mathematics is hard work to learn. We have to be taught it. It's, it's difficult. It's painful. And many, many people, the majority of people, don't get very far with it. So, uh, and yet it's got, to be in, it's got to be in our brains. You know, it's, it cannot be the case that only a few people have a brain capable of doing mathematics. Natural selection doesn't work that way. If something's in the gene pool, it's in the gene pool. That means... Insofar as there is a math gene, and that's a metaphor, it's not a real thing, we all have it. It's part of being human. If some people can do it, we can all do it. I mean, you know, it doesn't mean to say we're all good at it. You know, everyone can walk and most people can run, but very few of us can run a marathon in two and a half hours or two hours, three minutes, or even close to two hours. So, you know, there's a difference between the people who are very good at running and are Olympians and the rest of us who can sort of jog a bit and maybe manage to finish a marathon. Um, so there's a spectrum. But it's the same with mathematics. It's in the gene pool because some people are very good at it. That means we can all do it. So the question is, how did that capacity get into the brain? Now, we know that evolution takes place over, uh, well, for the brain, it can be over, over thousands of years. It doesn't necessarily mean tens of thousands because the brain is very plastic. But it's still a long period. It's many generations for something to get into the human gene pool and be established. So, so the question was, of how does mathematics get there? Because mathematics itself is really only four or 5,000 years old, and even numbers are at most 10,000. The figure you mentioned, 10,000 years, that was really the emergence of numbers. Uh, and numbers arose, as far as we know, in Sumeria, in, in the Middle East region, when society got sufficiently complex that they needed to be systematic about how they exchanged goods. They wanted some tokens to act as intermediaries between exchanging goods. So you weren't just swapping three cows for ten sheep or whatever. You had some way of counting them and measuring them. I mean, there wasn't accounting, that's the point. You would have had to have these things and point to them and say, I'll swap you these sheep for those cows or whatever you would say. Um, and to make that more systematic, you needed numbers and you needed money because when you assign numbers to objects, you're assigning monetary value in some form. Um, and it was around 10,000 years ago, we think, that in Sumeria, societies got sufficiently complex that, that numbers essentially were invented by an interesting roundabout way. Uh, and, and the original reason was to count possessions and to assign monetary to value, value to, to possessions. So, so that's 10,000 years. And that means the ability to do mathematics must have already been there. If in order for people to, to do it, to invent numbers, you need to have that capacity. And the question that I kept thinking about as I was transitioning from being a mathematician, uh, a pure mathematician, to being a very applied mathematics in the human sciences, the question I kept asking myself is, how did that capacity get inside the brain? Um, and... Uh, I, I, what I did was I, I ended up, in a, it took me several years, but I ended up in a year about around 2000 writing a book called The Math Gene, which was published in the US and the UK and actually been translated to most languages in the world now. Um, 
the math gene was a, a the, the title was a metaphor. I mean, I say in page one, there is no math gene. What I was doing with the math gene was trying to provide a, a coherent story of how the capacity for mathematics gets inside the human brain. And what I did was I, 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 I took mathematics as I knew it and had experienced it by working in it for 15 or you know, more years, and I split it apart to uh, nine different basic capacities. These would be the ingredients for baking a mathematical cake inside your brain. And briefly, they are number sense, numerical ability, spatial reasoning ability, a sense of cause and effect, the ability to construct and follow a causal chain of facts or events, algorithmic ability, the ability to sort of carry out algorithmic reasoning to follow recipes or instruction manuals, the ability to handle abstraction, that's a big, big one for mathematics, uh, logical reasoning ability, and relational reasoning ability. Now, when you've got those nine capacities, and they, they sort of overlap in different ways, but those are actually what you need for mathematics. I don't think there's anything that we do when we do mathematics, either creatively or just solving problems in a classroom. <clears throat> I don't think there's anything that you can't understand in terms of those nine. Um, you know, if someone can come up with me tomorrow and say, here's a tenth that you missed, I'll simply add it to the list. But uh, this, this has been around since 2000, this list, and no one's come back at me yet and said, you missed something. So I think I've got them all. And all of those are sufficiently basic that you can tell very plausible, rational stories that explain how and why they would have got, not just in the human gene pool, but in, this, in the gene pool of many other creatures as well. Creatures that move around clearly have spatial reasoning ability. In order to survive, they have to develop a sense of cause and effect. They maybe need to develop some kinds of abstractions of recognizing common patterns in order to... Um, uh, for various reasons, many, many species, including birds and many, and almost all mammals and other creatures, develop number sense. They have some numerical ability. Um, there's the spatial reasoning ability. In fact, of those, those nine abilities, uh, none of them are totally unique to humans. Uh, many of them are almost unique to humans. Um, you have to really stretch to recognize them in chimpanzees and bonobos, for example. Um, but th those nine abilities are all sufficiently basic that it's easy to tell a story of why Homo sapiens in particular would have found it advantageous to their selection to acquire that ability and to develop it, subconsciously develop it, and therefore it feeds into natural selection and gets into the gene pool. So, so I was able to tell this story of why and how and over what time scale those nine basic ingredients for mathematics got into the human gene pool. There was no mathematics then. People were just reasoning spatially. They had some sense of numbers. They knew when their tribe was outnumbered by another tribe. Uh, creatures knew when their tribe was outnumbered by a tribe of, of threat, threatening predatory creatures, etc. So they all get into the, into the creatures that can move around and have some kind of basic reasoning. will acquire some or all of those nine capacities to some degree or another. Humans acquired them all to a quite a sophisticated degree, and uniquely so. And then the question is, how and why did they all combine to give us mathematics? Because you have the ingredients, but as anyone knows who's tried cooking something, 
there's an awful lot more to cooking a good cake than having the ingredients. Uh, I'm actually not a very good cook, and you can give me the best nine ingredients in the world, and I will not make you a good souffle. I just can't do it. And, and I have tried and failed many times, and some people can. So, you know, partly I think when we talk about people with different mathematical abilities, what we're really saying is they are better or worse cooks but combining these ingredients. But we've all got the ingredients, and many other species of creatures have them too. So the question was, what sparked the first cake that was built, the first cake that was baked, the first mathematical cake? What, what was it that allowed people to, without realizing it, suddenly go from not having mathematics to having mathematics? Um, in my book, the hypothesis I put forward, and I, this, is a, this is a whole book because it's, it's a complicated story, I actually put forward a hypothesis, and I provide a, an argument to justify that one. Now, you could object to that one, but so far no one's come up with a substantially different story. So it's still the only story around, even though we don't know whether it's true, because it's a, it's a reconstruction of, of history over many eons. Um, but the story I tell is, is actually the moment we got these ingredients coming together to do mathematics was the same moment when we actually acquired language. Now, we've known, the linguists know, that we've had the ability to use words to designate things uh, for hundreds of thousands of years. I mean, it's just, it just goes back, it, it keeps getting pushed back. Um, we've had words that we can put together to say things, to, to make basic, you know, me, and you, Jane, sort of basic communications. What we didn't have until within the last maybe 100,000 years, maybe even less, was grammar. We didn't have the ability to put words together to form complicated expressions which refer to things outside of our environment. We had what was called proto-language. The linguists called it proto-language. It means we had words. We had the ability to use those words, one or two together, maybe, you know, me, Tarzan, danger there, out the way, look out. We could make useful utterances out of words, but they were restricted to talking about the environment. You could point to things. Um, in fact, proto-language is what we use when we go to a foreign country and we have a, a phrase book, and we just know a few words. We don't know the grammar, but we can make ourselves known. So we all know that we can communicate effectively about our immediate environment with just vocabulary. We do not need language. We don't need sentences and grammatical structure. Sentences and grammatical structure is what enables us to talk about things outside of our environment, things in the past, things in the future. That's a complicated structure. That's this complex thing called grammar. And linguists had, I mean, had also been asking the question, I was asking where did mathematics come from? Linguists for many generations had been asking the question, how did language arise? You know, we had proto-language. We just used, we invented words and we talked about, we, we referred to things and we pointed to things and used words. But how did that come together to form grammar? Um, and when I read that research, it became clear to me that the very argument that the linguists were using to explain how words got put together to allow us to form sentences of any degree of complexity, that was the same mechanism that would have allowed us to put these basic nine ingredients together to do mathematics. So the thesis I put forward to is that mathematics is actually a byproduct of, of acquiring language. In fact, it turns out there's an interesting twist. When you look at the work that was done uh, from the, uh, the anthropological work that's been done, 
it actually seems to go the other way around. It would appear that it was the capacity for doing mathematics that led to language. Because what happened, and I, and I find this convincing, but it is just a hypothesis, was what made us put forward, what, what made it possible for the brain to take these nine ingredients and allow us to bake them together to do this complicated sort of logical, rational reasoning was survival. We learned how to create plans. We learned how to recognize cause and effect, to recognize change of cause and effects. And we learned to recognize and think about, and, and I tell this story in great detail in that book, The Math Gene. We learned to reason and think about ourselves, our pasts and our futures, uh, to make plans, to communicate our plans. But it was, a, it was at the level of, of, of sort of survival. Um, it didn't involve actual sentences. But the moment our brains became able to do that kind of reasoning, because we also had a, voc a vocabulary, a vocal system, a, a, a vocal system that allows us to, to articulate sounds, we were, you know, a very strange quirk of human evolution means we have this ability to form very complex sequences of sounds with our mouths and our tongues, etc. Um, it, it's, it's, it's an unusual feature that, that, that the humans have. But because we have this ability to reason sort of mathematically, and, and, and mathematics, I'm just saying, initially, we're just planning to avoid dangers, to, 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 to do sensible things, um, like moving in the right direction. There's geometry and trigonometry, uh, knowing whether you're outnumbered by the enemy, there's arithmetic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That all got into the brain, but because we could also we, we could articulate that verbally or with sounds, we also immediately started to use it to, to communicate. And the moment we did that, we get language. Um, and so at the same time in history, which is maybe about 80 or 100,000 years ago, we think, um, although, again, that keeps getting pushed back as we get more anthropological evidence. Um, the moment that, that happened, we simultaneously got, a we got mathematics, insofar as it was mathematics, and we got language. Um, for various reasons, once we had language, uh, because it is the primary means of communication, it very quickly became easy to pick it up by simply communicating. Uh, it didn't make mathematics easy to master, but it put it in the brain. The capacities were there. And so uh, the story I tell is that that's when mathematics got into the brain. Um, and for various other reasons that I, I won't go into now, but they're in the book, I also explain why even though language is easy to pick up, mathematics is never the less difficult to pick up. The, the essence, by the way, is abstraction. The key thing that's difficult about learning mathematics isn't spatial reasoning or cause and effect. I mean, kids learn, you know, most kids when they're children love this story, chicken licking with the sky falling down. I, I used to spend hours reading that to my kids when they were little and loved it because it's this wonderful chain of sequences of cause, effect, cause, effect, cause, effect. Um, and we are hardwired to tune in and recognize cause and effect. It's a survival skill. So all of those things are natural and we don't need to teach them. Kids just pick them up. The thing that turns it into mathematics is abstracting those things and applying them in a real, in a very abstract way. And that's the thing the human brain finds difficult. And the reason mathematics is difficult to learn is not that we can't reason logically, we're not rational creatures, we can't reason spatially, we can't reason numerically. We've got all of those, 
the reason mathematics is difficult to learn is the abstraction. And that is extremely hard. And in fact, it, it, you know, as a teacher of mathematics, I'm aware that that's the thing that really makes mathematics difficult to learn, that abstraction. Okay, so that's that long story. Um, as I say, it's still the best one around, uh, and it satisfies me, but I'd love to see someone come, over, come along with a better or a different story because I'd be the first one to try and understand it. Keith, uh, I have two questions uh, that I want to ask uh, uh, together. Uh, uh, the first question is, uh, do other animals uh, have mathematical capacities and how their capacities are different to uh, human capacities or how their capacities are similar to human capacities to do uh, mathematics? Uh, and and the second question that uh, I, I, I want to ask now is that, uh, 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 that uh, you say in your presentations that mathematics is about finding and understanding relationships among various entities. And you make an important observation that there are similarities that how we understand human relationships and how we do mathematics. Uh, talk to us about this point. So, so two questions uh, uh, together. Uh, let, let us try to tackle these. Yeah, yeah. So the, um, I mean, and this is also something I got into in the, by the way, even in addition to the math gene, I wrote another book called The Math Instinct, where I actually applied the same scientific method to look at various creatures like animals, cats, dogs, uh, lobsters, and all sorts of creatures. When you look at the natural world, it's, it's amazing how many sophisticated mathematical abilities some creatures, what we call simple creatures, are. I mean, an obvious one is birds that can migrate over thousands of miles of ocean and get where they want to do. Monarch butterflies who migrate from Canada down to Mexico each year, uh, where, you know, just finding their way around. Uh, and all sorts of creatures. There's, there's a little the Tunisian desert ant that has an unbelievably uh, sophisticated GPS system built into it. So, so these things, these capacities, they're, they're around in, 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 in all kind of creatures, and they're, they're, they're all the time. So, um, but in, in terms of humans, uh, another aspect of the, uh, uh, the, the, the the research I did, the thinking about it, was that well. One of the things that's kind of interesting about people is, is the human brain. And, you know, this was just part of the evidence that I looked at. I looked at many things to try and tell this story about the origins of mathematics because it had to fit in as everything that we knew about neuroscience, about natural selection, about evolution, about biology. It had to fit all of these things. So when I said I was telling a story, it was a very heavily constrained story because it had to fit all of the known facts. So I'm thinking about... Uh, one of the facts was the human brain, which is extremely large compared with um, with the rest of the body. You know, it's in, in terms of the energy consumption, it uses way more energy than almost anything else. And, and compared with any other species, the human brain is an extremely wasteful, in, in some sense, of energy. It just uses up huge amounts of energy. It subjects the, the species to great risk because the brain doesn't finish developing until about 17 or 18 years after we are born. So we need looking after while we're children. We need to be, you know, we're helpless. You know, we, we are not born into the world as self-sufficient creatures because you know, the moment of birth is very early on in our development and it's only in, in our teens when we really start to, 
to, to finish this process of, of, of growth. And, and, and a lot of that growth is what's going on in the brain. That's what's taken, the, you know, the rest of the body is just getting bigger and stronger. But the brain is really developing quite dramatically. I mean, this is why we have different rules about criminal, you know, how we treat junior criminals from, from adult criminals. You know, we recognize that, that you can't expect children or even young, young adults to behave the same way as adults because the brain hasn't finished developing. So the question was, what is it that, why did the brain develop that capacity? Um, you know, it's clearly not survival or anything else because many other creatures are good at surviving. Um, and here's the answer I came up with. I said, well, in order to survive, all species need to be sort of somewhat dominant in their ecological niche. Now, some creatures survive because they are very fast. Some are very big and strong. Uh, some are... Uh, some have sharp teeth. Some have, some have sharp claws. Uh, some have poisonous venom in them. You know, we all have certain capacities. All species do that allow them to, to survive uh, as a species within, within their ecological niche. And human beings don't have any of these things. We're not the biggest, the fastest, the strongest. I mean, physically, we are pretty puny compared with other species. And yet we, are, we have become one of the dominant species on the planet. Uh, and the answer, of course, is we, are, we communicate and we have reasoning. We can think abstractly. We can do this thing that I would call mathematical thinking. You might just prefer to call it abstract thinking, abstract planning. We can do that abstract thinking. We can uh, communicate about things and we can cooperate and we can cooperate. Uh, and so we can outsmart all of the opposition by, by using our brain. Our brain is our survival niche. That's what gets us through. And that's why it is. So, yes, we don't have longer claws or faster legs or stronger arms. We have a more powerful brain. That's our survival thing. So having recognized that and recognized that that is almost certainly why we have this unique capacity to do mathematics and to have language with grammar, it's all made possible by this very large brain which and, and the rest of the story in the math gene says how this comes together. Because the difference between the story I tell about people in the math gene and the similar story I tell about various kinds of animals in the, in the language, in the, in, in, in the math instinct, is all about the, the, the difference is, 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 is the, the, the language and, the, uh, and the, the, the thinking capacity in the human brain. That's the one thing, the level of, of abstraction and communication that we have. So there's the big difference, and yet, and, and, and that explains why we have this very expensive organ sitting on the top of our necks. And yet when you look at what people, and, and remember I tell the story that mathematics really arose as part and parcel of the same change that gave us language. So naturally, when thinking about how mathematics really works, I, asked, I looked at the research that said, how do people use the language most of all? And it doesn't matter whether we're talking about scholars in a university or people on the street or just you know, all kinds of people. Across the board, the vast majority of the time we use language is for gossip. It's for talking about other people. So we have this incredibly expensive organ that evolved over hundreds of thousands of years um, that allows us to be this dominant species puts us at great risk when we're children and when we're thinking deeply about things. We've got this expense, and yet we seem to spend, and we're spending it most of the time talking about each other. We're spending it on what's known as gossip. Now, 
the conclusion you draw is that there must be a good reason why natural selection has made us predisposed to gossip because this is this very expensive organ. Gossip cannot possibly be a waste of time. We tend to think it is, but it absolutely cannot be. I mean, natural selection wouldn't allow you, that wouldn't happen. There's got to be something else going on. We're spending most of our expensive, powerful brain gossiping. So gossip has to be a huge part of human society. And indeed it is. When you, when you start looking at the sociological literature, you realize that gossip is the glue that holds us together as a society. It's the oil that makes things move together smoothly as a society. Gossip is the thing that makes us work as a human species. So gossip isn't irrelevant. It's the main purpose of the brain. This is why language, once it became available, was instantly dominant. Once we had language, it became the way we communicated over distances and so forth, because it was all about communication. This is why uh, cell phones and the, the web and everything became instantly popular, social media, anything that allows people to communicate instantly grabs our attention, because that is our survival species as a species. It's in our genes to communicate. Because if, it, if we didn't, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't have survived. We'd have been eaten or, or, or trampled on by bigger creatures. So gossip is this crucial thing about being human. And whether we think about it consciously or not, and mostly we don't, it's the thing that drives us. At which point I said to myself, in telling the story about how people do mathematics, which seems to be very difficult, we should look at what the brain does. Because as Stephen Jay Gould, the, the evolutionary biologist, always kept telling us, evolution proceeds by what he called exaptation. We take a, a capacity that's developed for one thing and we use it for something else. Um, and that happens all the time in, 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 in architecture and, everything and so forth. So um, if we want to see how, we, how our ancestors acquired the ability to do something in evolutionary terms, we should look at something they were already doing for reasons we could understand, and then try to understand how they use that capacity to do something new. That was really... By the way, computers is a good example of that. Computers were invented to do arithmetic in the Second World War. What we use them for now is most of all communication uh, and making movies and watching movies and, and so forth. So, you know, it went from doing calculations in the space of, a, of less than a couple of decades, it went to a, a, a communication device. So, you know, the, 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 the World Wide Web and social media are exaptations of these devices that were built to do arithmetic. Um, and the same happened with, with, with the human brain. When we learned how to do mathematics, we took a capacity, namely the capacity to gossip, which has the entire focus of the human brain driving it, as it were, and we learned how to apply that to mathematics. I mean, in fact, if you look at what mathematicians do, it's, it's, and in fact, the, the analogy I almost draw is that mathematics is the world's first ever soap opera. It's a fictitious world, but the questions of that fictitious world, well, first of all, soap operas are fictitious worlds that resemble the real world. In a soap opera, what your brain does and what the writers do and what the viewer experiences is the changing relationships between people. But that's what mathematics is. Mathematics is about relationships between abstract objects. Instead of having people depicted by actors on a television screen, in mathematics, we have abstract concepts like numbers, 
numbers, circles, triangles, squares, rectangles, cubes, octahedra, um, differential equations. We have all of these, 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 these concepts of mathematics, these abstract concepts. And what we do in mathematics is we examine and develop the relationships between them. So if you look at mathematics as it's experienced by the mathematician, it's just a soap opera. We look at the relationships of, between people, how they change, how they affect each other, how many of them are there, who's outnumbering who, how many of these are there, how many of those are there, who did that, who's guilty of that, who's innocent of that. That's really mathematics applied to abstract objects, when we apply those ideas to abstract objects. So the, 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 the final part of my story in the math gene is that when a mathematician does mathematics, someone who's already learned how to do it, when a mathematician does it, they are simply creating and living in and experiencing a soap opera almost identical to the soap operas that we see on television, except the characters are not fictitious people. The characters are just fictitious abstract objects. And the rest is the same. It's all about changing relationships. So mathematicians are not really doing anything new. They're doing something that everybody does. And on one extreme, when it's a soap opera, we think, ah, that's just trash. It's just, you know, it's just low level. It's nothing. You don't have to think about it. You just watch it. It's not even exciting. And yet people watch it in their millions because it resonates with the brain, because it's what the brain developed to do. And mathematics, we're simply doing the same kind of thinking but in a much more abstract world, the world of the soap opera on the television screen is not just abstract, but it also looks very much like the real world. Actually, this is part of why I said earlier that, it was, that abstraction is the problem. When you watch a soap opera, those characters are not like real people. Their homes are not like real people. The things they have are not like real people. They're, they're idealizations. But we don't have any difficulty following the soap opera because... The basic ingredients there are about people, relationships, marriages, births, deaths, um, you know, murders, etc. They're about human relationships, which we experience all the time, or we think about and, and reason about all the time. So when you watch a soap opera, all you have to focus on is how the relationships change, because the rest of it is part of your lived experience. In doing mathematics, that's not the same. In mathematics, you have to create the characters inside your head. You have to have inside your head all of the properties of those different objects, those numbers, those triangles, those different shapes, those curves, those surfaces, all of the stuff of mathematics. You have to create it in your mind. You have to have all of the background knowledge created in your mind. And only then can you follow the change in relationships. That's a huge cognitive load. And there's no wonder it takes years to learn how to do it and to become even competent at doing it because it's, not, it's outside of lived experiences. Mathematics operates in an abstract world we have to create in our mind. And that's why learning mathematics is difficult. But in principle, it's absolutely no different from writing or watching a television soap opera. So far, uh, this discussion has been about uh, the development and evolution of uh, uh, human brain. Uh, you identify a point in time in human history uh, when suddenly uh, the use of mathematics and mathematical tools emerged. And it seems that uh, uh, there was an explosion 
of mathematical innovations. Uh, talk to us about this explosion of uh, mathematical innovations at that particular uh, point in time uh, in our history. Uh, well, there's actually been several explosions. The first big one was the invention of numbers, which we already alluded to back around 10,000 years ago. And that, that really led to modern societies where societies could uh, had a sense of ownership, they had a sense of property, they had a sense of value. Uh, they could mark out, once you had numbers and you could measure, you could mark out land, you could own things, you could trade things. And so numbers gave us a, a, a language of, 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 of keeping track of things and having debts and, and ownership and so forth. So that was a huge change to the way people lived their lives. Um, and that was simply the invention of numbers. Um, the next really big revolution was really uh, the, the first few centuries of the, of the, current, uh, the, the, the current era, um, sort of current era, one, two, three, four, five hundred. Uh, that was in India, uh, where the... the, the, the you could call them mathematicians, the people, the philosophers, the thinkers, uh, and to some extent the trades, the trade, tradespeople, where they developed a very efficient way of representing numbers as symbols. Um, and before that, there were all kinds of tally systems of, of marks on paper and collections of, of, of pebbles and so forth. So there's lots of ways people had to deal with numbers. But the, but the Indian mathematicians in the first few centuries of the current era developed what we now call Hindu-Arabic arithmetic. They developed this, the place 10, the, the, the place value system with the digits 1 through, through 9 and a 0, and where you represent numbers by, by putting these digits side by side and using them to count and then, then having fractions represented, etc. So this was a very simple and a very elegant way of representing numbers that made it possible to do lots of calculations. This is really like uh, modern, very fancy grammar. Um, being able to do mathematics by putting together those nine ingredients was baking the cake. And that was a bit like acquiring the, um, the ability to have language in terms of sentences. Hindu-Arabic numbers, the number system, that was really like having a full-blown modern language where you've got conditional clauses and participles and everything. And you can really, uh, you know, you can, with, with, with modern language and grammar, you can have William Shakespeare. Um, with arithmetic, Hindu-Arabic arithmetic, you can have complicated calculations of, of all degrees of complexities. And that also changed the world in, in very fundamental ways. I mean, it was a, it was a huge revolution. Um, in fact, as a mental exercise, uh, you know, listeners might want to think of how they could possibly get through a day or even the first 10 minutes of a day if there weren't any numbers. I mean, it's first of all, the first thing you look at, you'd tend to look at the clock. Well, there's numbers already. What if you didn't have any measurements of time? You had no numbers. You mean, it's impossible to think of what life could be like. Numbers are truly fundamental. And actually, numbers are more fundamental to life than, than language. We can, uh, we can get by uh, with relatively little language, but in the modern world or anything modern, without a sense of number, we just can't imagine life. You know, I mean, I can imagine life without having things to read and without having to speak to people. I mean, I wouldn't like it, but I can imagine it. I can't imagine life without a sense of numbers. I just don't know what that would mean. I, just, I don't know how I would think. So, so, so you know, it, it was a huge revolution when we got uh, modern arithmetic and numbers and arithmetic. Um, and then uh, that, that Hindu arithmetic symbol uh, was actually the system was actually adopted by the, the the traders that were going up and down the Silk Route between the, the Orient and uh, 
and northern Europe, uh, northern Africa, and then into in, in, into 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 east, southern and eastern Europe rather. Um, and so they, they, that was then picked up by the Arab and, Arabic and Persian-speaking traders that were going up the, the Silk Route to the, from the north of the Mediterranean, from the Mediterranean coast of North Africa, uh, down into the Orient. Uh, and, 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 and because they were using this increasingly, this new system, to do their calculations, it, it very rapidly became widely used in, 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 in the Persian and Arabic-speaking uh, parts of the world in, in, those, in, in the 7th, 8th, 9th century and um, and then in Baghdad in the ninth century, a, a group of scholars, uh, one of whom was Al Khwarizmi, from whom we get the modern word algorithm, um, and he developed, uh, or he was he actually wrote about it was developed by a, a whole group of people around that time. They developed a very efficient way of doing arithmetic that allowed people to be much more effective when they were doing trading. Um, and uh, he wrote a book about it, and uh, one of the ways they, and, and essentially what they did was they developed systems of equations, formulas. Instead of writing down 5 plus 7, and then 9 plus 11, and 15 plus 19, and instead of writing down lots of sums, you could just write down a sum x plus y, a formula, and then let people plug values for x and y in. Um, one of the, so they developed basically algebraic notation and they developed the idea of solving equations. Uh, and, and actually, the modern word algebra comes from the Arabic phrase algebra, algebra being one of the techniques they used to, to what we would call balance an equation. So the very subject of, of algebra is actually, it's, its name, it, 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 it's an Arabic name that is given as algebra. So we've got this idea developed in, in India, uh, taped and developed, extended, uh, around the Baghdad region in the 8th and 9th century. Then at the end of the, uh, I guess the end of the, well, end of the 12th century, beginning of the 13th century, uh, an Italian, uh, a young man, I wouldn't call him a scholar at that stage, although he became one, this young teenager, um, through various personal reasons, observed some of these traders in the, on the shores of North Africa using this very fancy way of doing arithmetic very efficiently, he recognized that that was powerful. His name today, it was Leonardo. We think of him, today we know him as Fibonacci. And what Fibonacci did was when he recognized, he was a teenager at the time, when he recognized the power, the potential power of this system that was being used to, to, to keep books, to keep the numerical books for trading uh, using this modern system of arithmetic, he recognized it was powerful. He wrote a book uh, he went back to Pisa a few years later. He studied it, went back to Pisa, wrote a book in 1202 called Liber Abaci, the Book of Calculation. And when his book appeared, which explained to the West, to, to, well, to initially to the to people, to the traders, he wrote the book mostly for traders. He wrote the book, uh, and, and at that time, Pisa in Italy, Pisa, Florence, that region of Tuscany, that was the centre of world trade, at least from a European perspective. Uh, because it was on the shores of the Mediterranean, um, in, in, down in Italy, and then the ships would go around the Mediterranean between North Africa. And so that was what, and Pisa and that, that region was what linked together, and to some extent Venice, is what linked Europe, uh, which then was still very much in the Dark Ages almost, um, with, with North Africa in particular and, 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 and the Persian Arabic world, which was the centre of civilization by that stage. Um, so when that system of numbers crossed the Mediterranean by way of Libra, the book Libra Abaci, that set off 
an unbelievable revolution. And again, this is the power of arithmetic. Within 30 or 40 years of appearing in the West, that book, Libra Abaci, which explained arithmetic, within 30 or 40 years, we have, coming out of North Italy, about Tuscany, and eventually taking over the world, we have banks, we have double-entry bookkeeping, we have international global trading empires that run around the world. We have all of the material. We have lending. We have uh, insurance policies. Most of the language of finance in the Western world, the English-speaking Western world, most of that language has got Italian origins. It comes from Latin and mostly Italian. So all of that system that gave us the modern world, literally the modern financial and commercial world, all of that was instigated in the West by the appearance of modern arithmetic through Libra Abaci. It was an it was a revolution. It, it gave us the, the modern world, the, the modern world based as it is on finance and commerce and, and, and complicated transactions. All of that was made possible by arithmetic and it was so dramatic that within 40 or 50 years of that arithmetic becoming available, all of that machinery came into being and it's dominated the world ever since. Keith, uh, my final question is, uh, in your view, uh, is mathematics invented or is mathematics discovered? Yeah, that's um, that's an interesting one because mathematicians uh, have this overwhelming feeling that when they're doing mathematics, they are discovering a world. It's totally the way they feel. Um, and in fact, when I was younger, um, I, I just believed that. I just said that's what it is. There is this abstract world out there. There's this eternal universe of mathematics. And we as humans are simply... Uh, exploring it because that's how it feels like however once I started on the other hand I read books by philosophers and various people uh, like uh, uh, Wittgenstein the later Wittgenstein Wittgenstein when he was when he was a young man as I was at that, that when I was having these thoughts Wittgenstein was what we call a Platonist Wittgenstein thought that this was this external world of mathematics that we discover but when he got older he said no it's created by the mind it's invented subject to constraints of the way the mind works um, and indeed when I was getting older I, 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 I also shifted my perception especially when I started writing the math gene um, and then became and, and once I realized that mathematics was actually grounded in taking human capacities human experiences or experiences with many of which we share with other creatures and mixing them together in our minds once I realized that that was what was making it but I wasn't the only person who I think I was the first person that advanced this in the form of a book, but other people were saying the same kind of things, that, it was, you know, that we can't escape the fact that mathematics ultimately has to be a creation of the human mind. And in my case, once I realized that it was, uh, it was based on essentially the same, it was essentially a form of gossip. Mathematics was a very systematic form of, and incidentally, um, yes, it's true that mathematics works by following very strict rules. But if you look at soap operas, they do too. Soap operas, they're all, in some sense, all the same. They follow the same kind of rules. We wouldn't watch them if they didn't. They, they sort of stretch them. 
But, you know, it's like uh, almost any creative art, literature, music, uh, soap operas, anything like that, it would seem that people can just do whatever they want. Well, they can't really. They can keep, sh they can keep shifting the boundaries, but it only works by following rules. And the rules are pretty rigid when you look at it. Um, and the same is true of mathematics. Uh, and mathematics does change the rules. We, for a long time, we didn't have infinity, infinities in our mathematics. Now we do. So over the history of mathematics... We have also changed the game. We have had our versions of abstract music, abstract art. We've had all of these different variations. So mathematics is actually not as different from every other human activity as people, people might realize. The analogy between mathematics and a soap opera is much, much more close than people might want to admit or realize. Uh, but then it's actually it's extremely close. Um, and when you're inside the subject, you realize that. So we've got this this this. this this thing developing, this, this, this wonderful way of thinking, uh, this very powerful way of thinking called mathematics, but it comes from human beings. It comes in the brain, and it comes from the interactions the brain has had with the surrounding environment. Now, how does our brain learn what it learns? We begin when we're children, touching objects, moving objects, counting objects, thinking. Of, we, we interact with the world, and we form this, this way of thinking. So all of our thoughts are ultimately grounded in our lived experiences in the world around us. That's what, um, that, that's what we're built upon. When we, use those, that, the, the, that's, when we use that same brain to do mathematics, it has to be a brain that developed to deal with things in the world. So we are inevitably, inescapably, when we do mathematics, we are going to encounter it as if we're discovering things, as if we're reasoning with things. We are reasoning about these numbers, these triangles, etc. But they are just like proxies, abstract proxies, for things that our brain has been reasoning about for generations long before mathematics was on the scene. And so, of course, it's going to feel real because anything that goes on in the brain feels real, by, almost by definition, because all of our sensations are in the brain. Our sense of reality is still is inside the brain. It cannot be done without it feeling real. So when you do mathematics, it has to feel real. There's no other way about it. It's simply it's just like that. I mean, it's like reading fiction, science fiction, or outlandish fiction, or fantasy fiction. If you read fantasy fiction, at the back of your mind, you know it's not real. But when you're reading it, it's real. And that's the same with mathematics. At the back of our mind... I know, and I'm sure you know, that it's not real, but it feels real. That's why when a person is young and learning mathematics, they absolutely come to think, this is real and I'm discovering it. Because there's no alternative, it has to be that way. But when you get a, you know, when you've sort of been in the field for a bit and you start reflecting on it, and you get a bit older and you think about it, and then you really ask yourself, uh, you know, what is really going on here? Then you realize that, that sensation of it being a real world that you'll discover is simply the same sensation you get when you look out at the morning and think, there's the sun in the sky. Well, of course, that's not really what's happening. What's happening is your brain is firing in certain ways and a certain pattern of brain activation is, is interpreted by that same brain as being you looking at the sun. 
yes, there is something that your eyes are sort of picking up signals from, etc., etc. Um, I'm not denying, I'm not saying the world, I'm not arguing for solipsism, I'm not saying there isn't a real world, I'm saying that the only thing we can ultimately know is inside our brain, uh, and and therefore anything we develop when we're working in it has to feel real. But that doesn't mean to say it is real in, in, in any sense, it just means that's the way we create it in our mind. Uh, and if you want to step outside to some, in, 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 in the, the coin of phrase, if I want to sort of step outside my mind and ask what's going on, I'm saying no, uh, it's just a society's construction. So mathematics is constructed by people in conjunction with other people. What makes it constrained? What makes it seem that they can only go one way. And most of the time, mathematics can only go one way. You know, one plus one can only equal two. But that's because of the way one and one and two are definitely defined. I mean, they define to be that way. This, this sense of certitude is simply a consequence of the way we set up the definitions, we set up the whole game. It's this elaborate mental game that we set up with elaborate fixed rules. And once you fix the rules, you have to play according to those rules. And the way those rules are set up, I mean, we all have to agree on the same answers. Uh, we're all using a brain that is essentially the same kind of brain with the same kind of structure to it. The mathematics is, is embedded in the brain because it's part of the brain. It's part of our lived experiences as a species. It's the way we think. So it's not arbitrary. We, we're not free to go outside the tram lines. Uh, we are free to move the tram lines, and we do from time to time. Um, but it doesn't make it real in any in, in, in any any concrete sense. It's still something created by people. So, uh, you know, the conclusion I would say is when people say is mathematics invented or discovered, I would say a hundred percent it is invented, not by a single individual, but by an uh, analogy between the role that Leonardo played in instigating the first personal computing revolution in Italy in the 13th century, and Steve Jobs at Apple Computer with the Macintosh creating the world's second personal computing revolution 800 years later. So another thing I did in that book was talk about the comparison between the computing revolution that you and I lived through in the 80s and 90s in, in, led in Silicon Valley and the computing revolution that Leonardo led in the 13th century in, in Pisa and Tuscany, um, it turns out that those two stories are not just parallel. They, are, they, they, they sync, they synchronize step by step by step. In fact, what I did, and I wrote another little book called Leonardo and Steve, where I elaborate on this. When the Macintosh became a big seller, Stephen Levy, the, the tech writer, wrote a book called Insanely Great, The Making of the world's personal computer or something what i did was i took my history of leonardo from the man of numbers and i put it side by i literally did this i put it side by side on a desk with stephen levy's book about how apple led by steve jobs designed and built the macintosh and it was the same story page by page by page so i brought out another little book called leonardo and steve which is you can get it from amazon i self-published it um it's only about 50 pages i think but what it does is it draws out that parallel and shows the degree to which, this, to, to which the personal computing revolution of the 80s was just a carbon copy, a detailed carbon copy of the personal computing revolution 
in the 13th century. One was about doing arithmetic with paper and pencil, or computation with paper and pencil, and the other one was doing computation on silicon. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion with Dr. Keith Devlin. The plan is to schedule uh, another discussion soon and uh, that discussion will focus on his book Finding Fibonacci.